0: Welcome to REGISTER, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, myself and Matt Phillips interview Ellie Musiaby. Matt works with me in REGISTER here in Kingston, is also a tutor here running a master's unit and doing work with the tectonics module along uh, with Nick Lobo-Brennan. While Ellie Musiaby is a professor in the ETH, and a director of the Swiss firm Edelar AB Ebi Interbitzen Architecten, which he co-founded. This firm has a very particular practice on the plans that it makes, working simultaneously between strategy and detail, seeking to make uh, humane yet compact places to live integrated with the surrounding urban form. Their practice is concerned with making housing projects in the main, and in particular cooperative housing projects in the city of Zurich, Here, due to the emphasis on low cost, there's particular value to their methodology of paying close attention to the floor plan, seeking potential efficiencies but also unconventional routes to delight in the making of a place for a long-term community to develop. They seem particularly concerned by how rooms might interlink, how views might open up around oblique corners, and how form and the language of the architecture in which they make is secondary to these concerns found through the plan, not imposed upon it. There's a very strong link between her practice and the research and the teaching that she does in the ETH. And we tease out some of these questions in the conversation that follows. I do hope you enjoy the podcast. Ellie Masiebu, thank you so much for joining us in the Kingston School of Art. It's an honor to have you here.
1: Mm -hmm. And now that's the start. Yeah, we started. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for inviting me, and really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, and Matt Phillips is joining us, so Matt, thanks also for joining us. You're welcome. Ellie, I think a lot of architects have been studying the work of your practice for a while. It's been sort of emerging quietly, I think, and then suddenly, all at once, in this kind of way that architecture does. And it just is remarkable, I think, today to see such exquisite plans, Mm -hmm. you know, and to see the culture of the plan, shown as a practice as a way to finding a language of architecture which is quite rare today I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering is that something that um, has always been an interest of your practice or how has that developed?
1: Yes, um, I think the plan has been extremely important um, already during our studies. I think um, when we studied architecture with people like Peter Merkley, also Axel Fieker, for example, we were mainly working on the plan. so the, mm. there, were, there was a culture of the plan which is not so present anymore at the ETH anymore. And this has to do with the shift of culture too. And particularly, when we also started the office in Zurich, we mainly did housing competitions. Mm. And you know, when you do housing competitions, it's mainly about the size of the apartment to control kind of the, the layout of rooms and kitchens and you know private bathrooms and so on. So you really have to be very careful how much um, square meters you use, you know. Mm. So the plan is extremely important to control that, you know? um, And I would even say that um, the plan is also important when I kind of look back at what I did in my PhD on Caccia Dominioni. Um, I was quite fascinated by the beauty of the plan, mm-hmm. on one hand, So, it, because on one hand it's really abstract, it's mathematical, it's kind of a geometrical plan that shows kind of a notation of, of an idea, and on the other hand the plan has also pictorial aspects, which I like also a lot, so it has an atmosphere, it shows an image, an idea that is also kind of translated into something else, mm-hmm. as a graphic maybe. So these two sides of the plan are really interesting to me. I think that's that's quite beautiful. And in the end, when you also develop a project, I think that the plan <coughs> allows you to think really abstractly about um, the space, about the quality of the space, and you don't materialize it so quickly. Mm. The plan also allows you to kind of... Um, to connect kind of the the urban scheme with the kind of the micro scheme of the housing project or also another program and there is then kind of this fluid continuity between outside and inside and you control that too Mm. which is I think much more obvious than if you would um, say that the the facade is the generative um, plan of, of, of a project Mm. Because then it's maybe more kind of a shield or a, or something that is reflecting the inside outside or vice versa. But the plan, as such, I think it's it's um, it's like the corporate like the body of a of of a project and and it's like the core and it somehow brings together extremely different aspects and makes a coherent project on different levels possible.
2: Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. What's intriguing about the plans that you're producing, of course, is that, and there's lots of different ways that a project can be generated. It can be generated, as we know, from a detail Mm -hmm. or from a tectonic consideration Mm -hmm. or proportional systems. There's lots of different systems Mm -hmm. at the moment, Mm -hmm. live. And what I'm really cognizant in looking at your plans is that they are, they seem to be primarily concerned with, yes, plan graphic, but space Mm -hmm. at the same time. Not structural order mm-hmm. necessarily, mm-hmm. or and form seems to be an emergent thing from mm-hmm. that conversation, as opposed to something imposed. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. so this the the discovery seems to be in the plan.
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, it's of course the facade in the end also always plays a role, but but kind of the the main interest or the the kind of the innovation of of a way of life really happens in the invention of the plan. So when you're thinking about how people would live in a certain apartment, we are kind of, uh, for a competition project, for example, then we are imagining a plan or so, or a detail of a plan. For example, there is a project we did in Geiblerstrasse where a kind of a three-folded door and, and also window became extremely important and we fell in love with this detail and it was... A generative moment, also for the plan, but also for the facade. You know, but it, most of our inventions start with the with the plan, not not in every case, but most of it. But maybe mm. we, had, we can also say, I mean, the, the scale of the plan is one to one hundred. It's not one to fifty. So you work at
0: one to one hundred.
1: Yes, when you start designing it,
0: which is enough for you to see detail and strategy all at once.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And there's, but there's moments in your plans where you're. Pushing the limits of spatial possibility in terms of the thinness of a space or yeah. the ergonomics of a space, uh-huh. and in other conditions to do with how light moves around the building, and uh, they remind me, you know, when I was when we started to become aware of your work, you started to look at it. There's there's plan types that resonate in a way with Kadirk, you know, with uh-huh. certain moments uh-huh. in Kadirk's oeuvre. And also, I think with the kind of, um, with Rivas, you know, where you know, Rivas does those amazing insertions in quite orthogonal plans. I know that mm-hmm. you aren't about insertions, but you're playing with these geometries of 5, 10, 20, these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're non repetitive ordering systems in those mm-hmm. plan types. And then what's incredible about them is just how relaxed they feel in their finished form, you know, how human they are. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in this conversation between this abstraction, which Mm -hmm. seems quite a pure graphic Mm -hmm. investigation, and yeah, these are good places to live, even Mm -hmm. though they take risks Mm -hmm. with the possibilities of space, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, How are you calibrating that? Do you take it off the plan and examine it and model, or is it...
1: Yes, we also do models. It's, it's, you know, um, for example, this... And we also, maybe I have to say, we are not only working in kind of strange angles. I know, I know. Because we did that several times, and then in the Steinwies project, which I'm going to show tonight as well, it became kind of extremely loose and free, but then we started to become more uh, kind of rigid again, because we didn't like to have a style in this respect. But... um, yeah, I mean, of course, we we start maybe with the plan because we think it's it's extremely interesting to imagine a way of living, as I said before, or a not- or a notation of life through a plan. I also like sketching, you know, that's on I you mean, know, with a soft pencil, you kind of try out different possibilities how a plan can develop, and you see a lot already. But then um, we already um, sometimes we also do models. Yeah, I mean, modeling is important for us. Particularly if the plan becomes too complicated or if the space is quite tiny. Mm. You cannot really imagine how, how if it will work or not. So then we build models and test it also. So the models are have a scale from 1 to 50 to 1 to 20, mm. you know, to just to test it. So for example, in the Steinwies project, uh, which is really kind of... Um, organic you could say. Um, we r- After that we won the competition we did a huge model to test every angle because there it was almost impossible to say which angle is really right or wrong mm. and then we defined a certain set of rules saying that for example there are no angles less than 90 degrees for example because this is not really nice mm. to have it so most of the spaces have five corners or so. And so on, so um yeah, I mean modeling is is not really i mean we rarely start with the model because I mean it's just need, <laughs> i mean you just need too much energy, but um and it's not efficient, but sketching is is quite important, yeah, sketching, I would say is maybe almost the most generative. I also think it's easier to sketch something and to discuss it i mean that when we talk to students. You they explain and explain and you kind of talk around it and then you make a sketch and suddenly you also find an idea. You know there is this kind of, um, let's say, this directness between hand and what you are thinking. You no. Know?
0: But just to pick up on that to do with the sketch, I think that you're right. I think the the sketch and the conversation are analogous and vital. Mm-hmm. Like the sketch seems to be both productive of and responsive to a conversation mm-hmm. of course the conversation is also a method you know this mm-hmm. is also a technique combined mm-hmm. with, the, with the sketch and then I'm interested just in tracing the lineage back through your education because mm-hmm. although the work is very different mm-hmm. I'm aware of say Mir Slash Sheik's attention to the plan and mm-hmm. typology particularly in his early career
1: mm-hmm.
0: and was that the culture that you were being educated in a kind of typological understanding of plan
1: no, not so much. And I never studied with Milošlav. Yeah. Um, no, I, I studied with, let's say, who was important. I think Axel Fickert was extremely important and also Peter Merkley. And both are extremely interested in the plan. And I think both don't really follow this typological Mm-mm, trajectory no. when they def- uh, kind of experiment with space. It's more about kind of moments. No, you get kind local localities you find in the plan you find interesting, and from there you develop something with um Axel figured it was in a way quite outstanding because it was on one hand about the daily life. it was really kind of down to earth. on the other hand, he was always capable of kind of grasping the world behind it, you know kind of he was and he had also these kind of really very um let's say um colorful language, if you can say Mm. so. So he was talking about the belly of a space or, you know, this kind of... Almost, he gave the plan a kind of an anthropomorphic quality, which we liked a lot. I remember that well. And, you know, these guys, also Peter Merkley, for example, um, he also, he never starts from typology, but he starts from space and from proportions and how certain things are set into a sequence after one another. And I... I also kind of was fascinated with Peter Merkley that he never had this kind of r- rigour in a kind of in a in a hard way where he had kind of a scheme or a kind of an abstract logic that was embedded in the plan. So it was much it developed extremely soft through different local mm. moments, and then a certain set of proportions bound everything together. You know? So it um, in, with him, it almost sometimes became enigmatic. It was hard also to understand what he was actually doing, and you could not copy him. And and he, Peter Merkley and also Axel Vickert, of course, they went to the ETH in a phase where the type was extremely important. Mm. Le Corbusier was extremely important. And they never really kind of addressed it uh, directly. But you could feel that there is there are these knowledge is here, so they referred always to this background of architectural history and made us look at different things. Mm. So and I would say even I mean, I think Le Corbusier, for example, was extremely important, even though it, his name was not really outspoken. <laughs> yeah. But but he's as a kind of as a figure in in their face, not not necessarily in my face, but in their face. And then when we started to look at Le Corbusier, it was also something that astonished us a lot, how, how kind of rich, beautiful, and free he actually was, you know, he mm. was not at all a kind of a functionalist, never. And those uh, plans are great, sublime. Yeah, I mean, great.
0: And then you know, again, you can't copy, you know, you're looking at the mill owners, right? Yeah. But that's, what he's doing on that plan is mm. so rich on so many levels. Mm-hmm. And you can't really go there, as you say. It's it's beyond functionalism. It's a different type of
1: exactly. Order, yeah. So I, I would say that our teachers had gone this kind of movement. And they we're kind of you know we're criticizing a lot these heroes in architecture, kind of you know of, of the modern period, and we're looking also for a kind of different modernity, like. Like Schwarz, for example, or like Bouillon, for example, and so on. So you know, Corbusier was not that present, but but they and um, and they um, by kind of introducing those figures also got Domini, for example, Moretti, and this Milanese mm-hmm. um, scene was was important for us. And by introducing those those figures that never were kind of in the in the forefront of modernity, but always in the second or third row. Um, the architecture of their architecture was always much more softer and, and much more I would say interesting because it was combining a certain tradition with, uh, with modernity, and and by introducing that to us, we we always thought that kind of this architectural history is extremely important and we should learn from that. No, that's, that's also something. And we always looked at the plants. I don't know why. I mean, also the facades, but the plants, particularly the plants with the Milanese architects or Bouillon, the facades, of course, also, but became generative for our own projects.
3: I think what's interesting, when you consider the plan as something that's born out of trying to develop a piece of architecture, but then there's also this idea which you say... Um, is also about itself so about the figure
2: mm-hmm.
3: and I often because for myself it's also a very important mm. component but I in mean somehow they I always struggle with the sense that they might be in conflict with each other mm. that you're trying to find uh, a figure that has this kind of beauty or this composition but then it also has to serve the making of the architecture and that's always a complex
1: mm-hmm.
3: negotiation somehow that mm-hmm. you can make a more beautiful plan, but mm-hmm. it makes a less elegant piece of architecture.
1: yeah, you're right you're right I, I know exactly what you mean, but that's that's the challenge, isn't it? That's <laughs> the negotiation yeah I even think that <clears throat> this pictorial quality is not something that only I am interested in if you go to to kind of um sites as pinterest you find so many plants at the moment no and 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 I'm sure these plants are not um considered as as spatial configurations but more as a pictorial or as, as an abstract figure or as a composition or so and it's also interesting to look at it. I also like to do that, yeah, I do that, but then i i also um sometimes go and see these buildings and um, and sometimes it's also really. Even by really good architects, you are disappointed because the, the plan was much better than the, than the space. Mm. No? It's not really spatial, it's, it's just the plan mm. it, re- it remained extremely abstract and not really beautiful. But vice versa also happened, I mean, that you go and you see a really beautiful space, whereas the plan really doesn't say anything. So, I mean, I think we are quite aware of that. But particularly when you teach, I think the plan is kind of extremely important, it becomes an extremely important facet of the project, and the project is never going to be developed. I mean, you maybe make a model out of it or so, but you will never kind of live in it or feel it spatially as as a one-to-one. And uh, for that reason, I even think that the plan has its kind of dominance still, it will keep the dominance.
0: We need these kind of abstracted forces to pull us through the subject, and then there's this kind of oscillation back and forth. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm really interested in, say, Palladio, where all of the published plates are edited perfections of the actual adulterated reality, right? Mm -hmm. So, and actually, that's what makes them intriguing in that. What's really interesting about, say, uh, Rotunda, for instance, Isn't the purity of the plan really? Mm -hmm. It's its eccentric location on this hill, Mm -hmm. where one side is almost falling off, Mm -hmm. and then you have this expanse. And Mm -hmm. somehow, this tension between perfectibility and the impossibility of that seems to be somewhere the poison is. Mm -hmm. The real, because it's funny, you know. You look at these super refined plans where there's nothing in them, Mm -hmm. and you go them, and yes, they are thin gruel. They Mm -hmm. are not. They're beautiful composition, but they're thin gruel. And then you look at plans and they have a kind of a beautiful ugliness to them. Mm. Mm. You know, I'm thinking here of, say, Leverance and clip mm-hmm. The first time you see that plan, you don't really get it. Like, well, I didn't. Maybe mm. I'm not that good an architect. But then when you're after, you've been to this space, the plan somehow resonates in this completely other way and helps mm. you open up other things and plans. I think this is a, it's an interesting conversation because this basically we're talking about a, either hermetic work process that doesn't engage with experience and mm-hmm. the world or
3: one that gets polluted mm-hmm. enjoyably so right yeah I mean we were talking earlier we mentioned uh Crucis engine yeah and their position that they never develop the project through the plan and it's always a spatial um construction and actually the the plan always becomes this resultant uh, and whether you Believe that totally or not, because they're also interesting plans. Yeah, and, and whether there's still that negotiation going on, and decisions are being made because they're kind of wanting to kind of make a particular figure uh, or beauty. Um, I think it's really interesting. That conflict is very interesting when it, it has its own self-serving hmm. agenda. Um, yeah, uh, but obviously it has to. It's a manifestation of lots of decisions to try and make space and make pieces of architecture. By just going through great plans, you know. Because then, you know, because you're right, Like the, the,
0: there's that conversation around Cruz Assingen's work, and then as you were talking, I was thinking of exactly the opposite, say, Hans van der Laan, mm. and those plans, which are highly abstract mathematical things, and then you go there, and it's the most figurative, human... Mm-hmm beautifully inhabitable mm. space, mm-hmm. which has been driven by a highly abstracted mm. plan-based, or it seems to be a plan-based exploration. And is it, the, 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 is it credible? Is it credible that a practice doesn't care about the plan? I think they do. It might not be the primary thing. It's interesting. Mm. I'm thinking of as plans, right? And let's just start with Walsall. There's a pretty beautiful plan. Mm. Yeah. And of course, it's a conversation with the form.
1: Yeah, <coughs> maybe. Yeah, I I, uh, I. I don't know. I mean, it was just for me when I when this British influence became more and more important at ETH, and I was kind of a guest as as a re- guest critique Bit um, mm-hmm. during the reviews of um, Adam or also others, I just realized that you no, know, we were discussing a lot about. About facades and urban schemes, but never about the plan and 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 even you know the plans were fully furnished with plants and cats, and whatever and <laughs> <laughs> we were not talking about them because they were considered to be less important and just i I didn't get that I mean, to be honest, I didn't get that and i I also thought maybe it's kind of the result of a market economy where you know the kind of the separation between core and shell has has kind of created this distinction between façade and, and interior, where the façade became more and more important and the interior is somehow kind of something that is interchangeable.
2: Hmm.
3: I also think it's interesting that um, for some architects, the plan becomes the identity of the work. So there's repeated um, conditions happening yeah, or moves. And I think what's interesting with your work is um, that there is this um, focus on the plant, but actually, because there's an openness um, to the kind of influences, uh, that actually, there doesn't become an established identity through the plant. It's, it's mm-hmm. very different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: But maybe it's
0: also come to do with our context, which is that Adam and Peter were coming out of a movement which was trying to resist ego-bound gesture in the making of urban presence. Mm-hmm. So in the British context at that time, there was a very particular cartoonish version of high-tech and postmodernism, which was a quite mannerist thing. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to make a discussion, an argument, for an ambiguous type of physical appearance to the building that draws on history and which is yet of our age. And for them, maybe, the the really difficult debate... Was mm-hmm. that one, mm-hmm. so of course, they did good plans in the way that buildings stand up, but for them, maybe that was the harder thing to articulate when they were younger, and then that was what they continued to articulate in their work, It's kind of interesting um but it kind of th- th- just circling back then, you guys met when students the your partners and you did you all meet while studying?
1: Yeah, we met in our in the uni- at, at ETH, yeah
0: and was this a kind of thing where how did that conversation evolve for you decided to eventually work together? Was that something that was clear reasonably early on or
1: Um Yeah, that's a funny, funny question. No, we were actually um Christian and Ron, um my partners, they were good friends from childhood. You know, they knew each other very I mean, they know each other very well, so um, and then Um, Christian started studying at the ETH, whereas um, Ron um, had this draftman, I mean, he started as a draftman, and um, he then also studied at the art school and so on, and he never knew. And then finally he decided to do a kind of a guest, I don't know how to say that, Um, he was a guest student at the ETH, (coughs) and for two years, I think, and in these two years, he one year we studied together, so we did the Merklin semester together, and then there is also another semester where, where he and Christian worked together, and and yeah, yeah that's somehow it, there was. I mean, we also we always met him, and also when he was not at, at the ETH, and there was this kind of friendship mm. before that, uh, which was extremely important. And then we started doing competitions already in the f- in the final year, and we had a also an exposition we did once in the in the main hall of ETH. So that's how it started. And then um, after our, my diploma Ron and I started to work in the office of Peter Merkley for almost a year. That also was important. Kind of brought us together. And then we realized that, you know, working in other offices is, 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 might be interesting, but it's also limited in a way. Mm. And we thought, you know, we can just continue living as students and do competitions. And maybe we win one and then we never have to <laughs> work in other offices. Or maybe just for a short time to, 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 to just to finance ourselves. But then quite, quite early on, we, we became, as Christian and I, became assistants in different chairs at ETH, and so we could kind of fund our lives, mm. because it took us maybe four years until we won the f- first competition, so there was a kind of a hard time <laughs> before, before the first bigger job. Yeah. So you're almost
0: training yourself to win competitions, in a way.
1: I mean, we did a lot of competitions and we had to learn how to do them, yes. We had to train ourselves because in the offices we were, I mean, the office of Peter Merkley, you could not learn that. I yes. he was. It was a different kind of office. He was more interested in his own ideas and then he entered the competition, of course. I also did competitions in his office, but it was more about kind of... His ideas, um, bringing them down to paper and then kind of handing in it, but of course uh, his ideas also produced sometimes real questions I mean, on the other side and they could not understand it or grasp it or so. Mm-hmm. So I, I, and for me it was also interesting because I knew him as a student and afterwards as an architect I realized that his, his way of designing is really particular and it's hard for him to kind of to be understood on the other side. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that when I was studying. I thought. He's really a kind of the voice, <laughs> and and then um, yeah, and then but after this period, I I was quite happy that i um, on one hand I was um, had this position at ETH as an assistant of theory. I thought that's interesting because I continued learning, which was quite important for me that this these studies were. I mean, you you, know, you started six years and after six years you were able to kind of do competitions, but in a way it was also in between somewhere, you know. I, stopped, I mean, I did my diploma at the age of maybe 26 or so, so I had a the feeling there is plenty of time to continue kind of these studies. So this theory um, flirt was extremely important because I somehow um, learned what, what academic thinking and writing might be, and how that c- can influence our kind of way of kind of arguing while describing architecture.
0: Yeah. Mm. And that kind of theoretical discussion, mm-hmm. well, it can be a distraction, but properly used, it can be another one of these armatures that we can really use to to drive meaningful work. <coughs> yeah. Um,
2: I, I
1: I also think, you know, when you do competitions and you kind of... Have to invent on for every competitions kind of a new topic. I mean that that was always our, our aim, you know, just just to redefine every or kind of to look at the brief and think of what what could be invent there and so on. If you do that on the long term, the question is always how do you survive? No, mm. I mean you cannot repeat yourself. That's that would become very boring. And I always thought that this kind of Research or investigation in architectural history, or kind of this ambition to to include more than normal architects do, would kind of be more kind of durable. Kind of you know would help us to uh, also have topics on the long term.
0: I'm just thinking there that all of us sort of go through different versions of the story Mm -hmm. that you've described, which Mm -hmm. is that we're educated, and some people affect us, and then we work and there's a bit where you begin to develop a critical conversation about where you work and it's almost like the thing that binds people together to start work in a way is a critique of what has come before in Mm -hmm. a way it's like a kind of well we're not quite like that or this isn't quite working Mm -hmm. Um, and it does seem to be one of those kind of essential parts of the architectural education and as this is a podcast which is you know I know lots of other non-architects listen to it also but it is for students of architecture to think about: is that that point where you're in an office, any office, is an opportunity to further refine your kind of critical faculties, and that's not a negative thing to do. I mean, mm-hmm. these are people we could massively respect, while still in the pub afterwards, going,
2: mm-hmm.
0: no, maybe not for mm-hmm. me, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I'm thinking, as you say, that of course, yeah, Merkley's work you do need to see it Mm -hmm. in person Mm -hmm. and then you get the taste of it and the flavor of it. And then we talk about leverance as well, that communication gap, I think Mm -hmm. there's work that just has to be
3: seen, you know, and that's very difficult in a competition.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yes.
3: Uh, One of the conversations I thought was interesting to pursue with with you is the topic of conversation, the chair Mm -hmm. is this um, notion of the second modernity. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about it quite a lot, um, And there always seems to be this idea of um, dichotomies, Mm -hmm. opposites, or differences. Mm -hmm. And and then I also see in your work, and actually you as a kind of teacher, that there's a sort of restlessness to keep pursuing different things. Mm -hmm. And we spoke yesterday about this idea of authorship and agency. Mm -hmm. And in some ways I feel like this kind of openness to explore different things is also a way of somehow um, avoiding that kind of notion of authorship or a very particular, this this is what I stand for, Mm -hmm. and remaining open somehow, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is something very interesting as you, as a practitioner and as a teacher, Mm -hmm. that there remains this kind of broad kind of openness to Mm -hmm. explore things. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that for us? Where, Where does that kind of agenda
1: come from. Um, I just simply think that when I got this chair at ETH, you know the question was for me in which framework I would develop the projects of the students and I would kind of conceptualize our way of discussing about architecture. And of course you can just do one semester after the other and come up with nice ideas and good programs. But um since it's it's kind of a course of six years I thought it would be interesting to have kind of a kind of a conceptual open framework that would also help us to define what we are standing for mm. because I, I think it to 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 build up an own identity is as as important as to create good works no? and I I started with this idea of second modernity because I realized when I had this talk with the president of ETH that you know he he is really kind of um he's of course he's a machine engineer if I'm not mistaken or an engineer and he really b- still believes in progress in kind of t- biotechnology technology in, in our society and this is on on many other levels this is being discussed and it's being undermined also by by kind of ecological catastrophes and so on that are taking place now. So I, I became aware that there is this one side of the world which is really technocratic or kind of or technophile, mm. and on the other side there is this cultural world that is not really kind of you know, discussing with the other side, so there are my two branches. And as architects, um, we are actually in between. You know? And And of course, I always felt myself more to be kind of on the cultural side than on the technical side. But I found it quite interesting that I could somehow see what they are thinking and discussing. Kind of ETH as the one, as as a real technical school that somehow comes up with new innovations almost every day. I mean, really gra- groundbreaking, which is extremely inter- interesting also for me to read <laughs> what they mm-hmm. have found out. And the, on the other side, the architectural world. And then on the third side, the, the cultural kind of world, human sciences and so on, that somehow think about that. And my, my um, question was, in which position do we, uh, where do we position our, ourselves in between these two worlds? And how can we bring those two aspects together? And, and then, um, we, you know, the, the, I just think that, the, I mean, digitalization, I know, I mean, that has been said by others many, many times. It's really changing our way of thinking and grasping reality. And the question is, how can we just conceptualize that in our own work, you no know, in architects? Because I'm not interested in the smart house or something like that. Mm. But, but of course, it affects us on, a, on many, many levels. So um, we started to think about what uh, the second modern or second modernity could be, and and started also to read about it. And it was interesting that at the beginning I thought it's it's an, the, the the word isn't the, the term is an invention by us, and then I realized that it was invented actually also by others already. <laughs> so um, it was Ulrich Beck who had invented it uh, by the end of the '90s, so around millennium, and and also Heinrich Klotz. And Heinrich Klotz is an architectural and art historian who was actually at the DRM, at the um, at the founder of the DRM in Frankfurt. And Ulrich Beck is a sociologist from Munich and both died, one in t- 2015 and the other in 2000. So they set up this theory of Zweite Moderne that never really was kind of completed and it was also highly debated and really criticized by others. And what uh, Ulrich Beck says that is that uh, modernity somehow produces kind of um, modernity causes so many problems that undermine modernity itself. Yeah. No? There, there is this kind of backlash you have not foreseen, know, yeah. and you cannot never foresee it. And he he only says you should actually conceptualize also these paradoxes that you cannot foresee these accidents that happen in your framework while thinking about the future or while kind of conceptualizing the the present. And I thought that's quite interesting for us too, you know, because architects somehow, on one hand, we believe in progress in a better world and so on, and of course, on the other hand, you have all these backlashes also in the everyday life of architects. So we started to set up these dichotomies that we think are interesting, so, in our concepts, uh, we do not only think about one aspect of the work, but we also always try to think the the other aspect of it, which is on the other side of it. Mm. So, one, one dichotomy is fo- see foreseeable, unforeseeable, but it could be also more simple than beauty and ugly, or or um, beautiful and ugly, or th- let's say um, dark and, and light. No? So these kind of things uh, seems to be at 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 first it, it seems to be very banal, but if you try uh, try to think of it, it becomes quite interesting because a certain kind of um, um, changeability is introduced into architecture. It's not it's not a rigid vessel, vessel anymore, but it becomes almost fluid, or it has to kind of interact with these two diff- completely different conditions. Mm. And that's only the starting point. We started with that, and uh, we did some one-to-one mon- one one models with the students. And it's quite interesting how architecture, also in both projects we have done now, uh, becomes kinetic. Mm. But that's a trajectory we don't know how how it's going to develop further. So it's it's really only a start. Uh. I
3: mean, it's also just in <laughs> that idea of agency that uh-huh. we talked a lot about ah, in the last yeah. few days. Mm. And in some ways that's also about connecting with the world yeah, and yeah. being open
2: yeah.
3: and um, those kind of pure concepts like modernism yeah. somehow close down that conversation yeah. and you, you, know, you talk about narrative rather than concept yeah.
2: Yeah. and in
3: some ways concept becomes limiting but yeah. it also becomes dictatorial
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah.
3: and removes that possibility of a certain contingency. And it feels like you sort of state this position to work with the uh, sort of second modernity, and somehow it frees you from those constraints.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, um, I've been giving this lecture together with Arno Brandlhuber on Tuesday, and it was also about the question how if if the idea of autonomy of architecture, which has been strong in Switzerland since the seventies, yeah. has come to an end or not, and my question was really provocative for some of my colleagues, because of course the i mean autonomy of architecture as such has produced a richness in architecture that is outstanding and somehow also explains this um, this high building culture we have in Switzerland you know, because it 's considered to be as something kind of in, an independent discipline that has, has a set of rules and is de- developed from within, you know. And, and you see that in all these beautiful works and so on. But sometimes I just feel, particularly nowadays, that this can, this way of thinking about architecture has come to an end and we should strengthen the discipline from it within by opening it up a bit to other forces. That's, that's what I mean. No, it's
0: interesting though because the... The autonomy, that's an interesting one because I agree There's certain forms of practice and they are significant teachers both in the ETH and elsewhere where the autonomy of architecture does appear to have produced a dead end where it begins to approximate some kind of art practice mm-hmm. and that's interesting but I think that's quite a narrow read of the autonomy of architecture because architecture by its nature is enmeshed in the world. We're asked to do things by people outside of the discipline. Mm-hmm. We put together materials all manufactured by people outside of the discipline to codes written by people outside the discipline for people outside Mm -hmm. the discipline so for me I always understood the autonomy of architecture argument as something which was recognised that inmeshed quality as being the discipline but it is an autonomous overlapping of these fields if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. which in a way say Peter Merkley the work sits very easily within that Mm -hmm. it's more laterally that people have forgotten about the humanity that you're discussing Mm. and it sounds like you're returning to or kind of talking about this other tradition of modernity which sort of always existed alongside modernity Mm -hmm. this Puyon, Alto, all of this Mm. and it does seem to be one of the things that I think is very interesting about the contemporary condition or this contemporary modernity is the climate crisis, the carbon crisis Mm. and its effect on architecture has been that because of the thermal isolation between interior and exterior, we mm-hmm. have this far richer, more ambiguous tectonic now, mm-hmm. which asks the kind of questions that you ask mm-hmm. because they're not going to be borne by easy conventions of concept or purity because mm-hmm. the essential quality at the heart of architecture now is ambiguity, not purity, which is an, it, which has happened not through theoretical discussions, this mm-hmm. isn't because of complexity and contradiction, This is because of building codes in response to climate, Mm -hmm. which happen to co-align with a theoretical position. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I find that really interesting, really exciting what you're talking about, because I don't think what you're actually saying is reneging on the discipline of architecture. It's about reminding that architecture is this this negotiation always. Mm -hmm. And the people who try to pretend that it's not, be it Eisenman 30 years ago or others today, Mm -hmm. they're sort of sidelines. You know, they're sort of sit up. there's fine, you know, but they're not going to change how people live. I don't think. Mm. Whereas you're, I think you're talking about something more profound, where it's actually to do with, yeah, ambiguity. But that has heft.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It might not be easy to describe. I'm interested though in this kinetic architecture. <laughs> so Matt, uh, you work in the chair. What, what are we talking about when we talk about kinetic architecture? Are we talking about Schroederhaus? House? Are we talking about? Yeah, Archie kind
1: of, kind of Schroederhaus, House. Yeah, so. For example, last semester we had this um project with four doors it was uh, actually it was like a corridor when it was really closed with four doors and you could open the space up and then you had somehow a hole and and this semester it's it's kind of a ceiling that is rotating above a wall yeah, and you know it's somehow you are so used to that the architecture is always. Fixed and not moving. That that's when it starts to move and becomes kinetic or flexible, and it's somehow touching. I don't know why, but somehow it's really touching.
3: (laughs) I I also think it's born out of other. Oh, my interpretation is it's born out of other issues as well, and there's a strong, um, I guess, interest in Mm theatre within the chair Mm -hmm. and. There's something about theatre which is this constructed
1: reality, yeah. Yeah, Mm. this performance. Mm -hmm.
3: And I think we're interested in that. Um, I, I guess through the production of kind of image, or we talked about the plan earlier, somehow there are these fixed entities. And actually, maybe we forget that people are living in these things. Yeah. And theatre is this sort of heightened. Version of performance, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to kind of look at that as a as another discipline which maybe reminds us or allows us to think about the performance of everyday space. Um, so that's interesting because that links to
0: you know the, the, the domestic liturgy of living in an apartment or something mm. like this. And as you were talking, I was thinking about two things. I was thinking about that Duchamp door, the studio door, yeah, and then your own project, I think, on Mm Gabelstrasse, where the door engages with a folding Mm façade and the opening of the door opens up this enfilade space Mm -hmm. but also turns the façade into a figurative Mm -hmm. element. And when the door is closed, we get a contained room. Mm -hmm. And it seems like such a powerful kind of gesture, actually. It is theatrical, Mm -hmm. as as you say, Matt. Uh, When that happens in that apartment, it's almost like... The air is different, mm-hmm. you know, it can do mm. different things. In a way, the Schroeder House was about the fetishization of that, and actually, the building was always the same. You yes. could fold the hinges whatever way you want, but you were always in the same space. <laughs> Whereas you're talking about, actually, subtle ways the space changes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I and mean, yeah,
0: yeah. the way you use it changes. Yeah. Yeah. You're not trapped in it. It's...
1: No, no. You, it's It gives the, the dweller the possibility to change himself or herself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting, I think
3: I mean we've also looked at scenography
2: mm.
3: and, and that aspect of theater, I guess you have the actors who are performing, but then there's also the architecture of the theater that's also being moved or adjusted and and so maybe there are these two aspects, which mm. is the kind of movement of the body mm. in terms of the theater of everyday life mm. and whether the architecture can also start to engage in that yeah um I merely. Mean, Doing a, I know you're doing a project at the moment where I think it's these studios mm-hmm. and you have this one door, mm. um, which allows you to kind of open up and close down and deal with levels of privacy. Um, but I can imagine that that door becomes this kind of protagonist mm. um, mm-hmm. uh, in the kind of daily rituals mm. of, of living in that space, which is really interesting. Um,
1: I mean, in our office, we have this fascination or almost obsession with doors—not <laughs> not an obsession, a fascination with doors, mm-hmm. because they are kind of the movable element in in the ar- in the architecture, and they can make a space so so much richer than than if you have only one door for a room. If you have two doors or yeah. three doors, or so, it kind of really opens up the space, and suddenly it's it's included in a bigger space, or then it, can, it becomes a nutshell again. So I. I we really liked it and and you know it's also maybe which what has which has to do with this idea of or this research for how domestic space is transforming the last 10 years or so and our questions how can we kind of um find new topics and of course, I mean, domestic space has always been scenographic. You know, I mean, if you look at the bourgeois housing by Loos, for example, which we have seen, or in Vienna we have been last week, also the house by Josef Frank, the the Bear House. It's extremely scenographic. Mm-hmm. You know. You come into an apartment and first uh, in, a, in a house at first it's really pre- a press space and then suddenly the space explodes in front of you and you stand in front of a huge bay window and look into the garden so it's it's extremely theatrical and, and, and there's a clear narrative somehow embedded in the in the pla- in in the project
0: yeah Frank in particular
1: Frank and, and Loos also yeah of course yeah
0: when yeah. yeah. thinking of those houses Frank did in Sweden yeah and they're quite gentle kind of quasi-adaptions of the yeah. vernacular, yeah. but as an ensemble, highly theatrical yeah. with fireplaces, stairs, doors and windows, huh. reconfigured in different ways, such that they accrete some kind of um, narrative meaning, Yeah. which is that project in particular, that collection of houses yeah. as think of, as a piece of theatre, I find really interesting to yeah. think of it that way. Because what we're talking about here is how ordinary quantity elements of architecture might develop real meaning and valency in the lives of people who use them, yeah. be it a door. Yeah. Which seems to be a far more interesting place to set a theoretical discussion than say the work of some French philosopher. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? A door might be a more theoretical discussion and even about sign signifier that those kind yeah. of things which a door is a door so it has no other meaning than a door except by the ritual use by which we can use it. Some doors open and they indicate certain things. Are they allowed yeah. certain things yeah, to happen?
1: Yeah, and, and it, the door is always the scale of a of a space, you know? Yeah. Because you, you are somehow... Because it has a proportion... It has an anthropomorphic proportion, and you somehow think of the door as yourself, and you compare it always to the space above it or right to it. And it's, that's quite interesting. If you look at the space without a door, you don't know how, how large it is. Yeah. I mean, also,
3: know? I mean, that aspect of theatre, which is also a two-way experience, mm-hmm. and... Yeah. Uh, we we looked at a text by Virgil Colomina, and she describes, um, it's the Moller House I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, she's, she describes the um, uh, the idea of someone entering the house and someone is already seated in um, one of the um, upper kind of lounge spaces and somehow there's this shift between uh, who's the voyeur Yeah. Um,
1: Oh, who is the actor and who is, who is actually watching or yeah. observing. That's and that relationship shifts.
3: Yeah. Um, because on entry, uh, the person coming into the house is the one being watched. Yeah. And then as soon as they're in the space, actually the person on the elevated kind of territory is the one who is on stage. And there's this really interesting dynamic between how that plays out
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, in this kind of symbiotic kind of relationship yeah and
1: you know and in the last years the kind of <coughs> apartment sizes have become more and smaller and smaller and so the pressure that you do something that is uh, kind of interchangeable or makes a space Bigger than actually that then it, than it is, is actually has become larger. Now, so we are interested in doors because also they they seem to make the space more generous. If you have two doors or more doors that you know, there are uh, which are really necessary, you can have kind of different ways of pass into an apartment, or you have different possibilities. Suddenly, even though the space is quite small, you know? yeah, that's yeah. also interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm even thinking of you know. I feel because apartments where there's a front door and a back door there's two stairs to mm. an apartment which changes the nature of the apartment yeah. if you can avoid your neighbours by going out the back stairs these things have powerful effect I'm conscious that this is a great conversation but we're beginning to eat into our lecture time okay so Ellie we always close with one question which mm-hmm. is that if you had a piece of advice to give a student of architecture
1: uh-huh. what would it be? I think um I think the the topics you you find during your studies are not too many. I think you maybe find two or three topics that are really interesting to you, and it's extremely important that these top you, that you keep and maintain those topics for your own future life as an architect and and not look at them in a superficial way, but to, to deepen them because one topic leads to the next topic, which is quite similar, and then you suddenly find a red thread to your own kind of way of thinking about architecture so kind of you know cultivating your own personal interest in architects architecture is 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 extremely important
0: yeah it's hard i i I think that's a hard thing to do like some educational contexts actually mean that you can't Mm -hmm. so there are some schools set up around kind of the fourth esoterica of ego bound units looking to express themselves as mm-hmm. artists in certain schools particularly in this country actually and it's so difficult for the students to connect with
3: the ground that they stand on yeah. you know i it's a really good piece of advice i mean it's also ties in with that conversation of the second modernity and uh, i think because it remains so open and it's about a, a lot of opposites or di- uh, dichotomies um it remains very open, but maybe somehow very difficult to pin down as a student. But maybe that's its strength also yeah. that it remains open. And I think just the key the, the, the key
0: things though you can always list them. There's like the plan, or these things are kind of essential things, and it's it's okay for that thing that fascinates you <laughs> to be a fairly obvious topic within the discipline. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes the intelligence there's the baseline, which is that architects. By the way, schools recruit architects. Mm-hmm tend to be rather intelligent people. And sometimes sometimes that's disabling because the super intelligent person moves past the obvious, like the door or the column or mm-hmm. the plan mm-hmm. to other territories. And actually it is a good piece of advice to sit sit on a topic for mm-hmm. a few years. Yeah. yeah. And to try and see where it takes you. Yeah. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you both. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. Before signing off, I'd just like to thank Matt again and, of course, Ellie for her time and her insights, and to thank the rest of the Register team, who are Christoph Luder, Matt Wells and Laura Evans, who deserves particular thanks for co-producing this series of lectures and podcasts. I do hope you join us next time. Thank you very much.